Alrighty. If you have your Bibles this morning, which I'm going to go down and grab. Thank you. You can open up first to, to James chapter 1. We'll, we'll get there shortly. Yes, good morning and it is good to see all of you. You know, many months ago when, when Jeremy and I were, were chatting about, you know, what I, what I would cover, you know, what text or what topic, you know, should the opportunity arise um, and, and the pulpit be open, um, I thought over a few things, you know, I remember mulling over and thinking, oh, it could be this, could be that. Uh, and then before I realized and landed, this is, this is the one. So our small group has, for the better part of four years, almost five years now, gone through First and Second Samuel. So um, that's where we'll be this morning for the majority of our time. Um, and there are many times in that study that I have felt, you know what, this, this will make a good sermon and with Jeremy being out the last couple of weeks, uh, here's my opportunity. So I pray that you are, are blessed and thankful for the opportunity. And may the Lord guard me from error and may you be edified. Let's, uh, let's see. There's some here in, our, in my small group already. And I trust that those that are in the small group will still be um, edified as we go through a large portion of, of 1 Samuel this morning. Uh, attempting to cover a large part of the book uh, not, not in the outline. The outline is not wrong. So if you, if you have your outline, it says 1 Samuel 13-28. Uh, it shouldn't be a colon. There is no verse 28 in chapter 13. We, I do intend, Lord willing, to, to cover uh, 16 chapters of 1 Samuel, although not verse for verse, of course. Uh, at least for your benefit, right? Um, we might have some falling asleep here. So we'll spend, again, the better part of our morning in 1 Samuel. However, first, if, if you haven't already, uh, turn your Bible to, to James chapter 1. And I want to take a look at a couple of New Testament passages um, by way of instruction before we get to 1 Samuel 13. And then uh, after James, we'll be going to 2 Corinthians 7. So let's turn to James chapter one. Now, the title of the message today is The Unrelenting Progress of Unrepentant Sin. The Unrelenting Progress of Unrepentant Sin. And you can be sure of this that sure, you can be sure of this that sin wants to progress, it wants to progress. And if you have sin and do not repent, then sin will plant its roots deeper and deeper until you are unable to break free from its grasp. Remember what God said to Cain? After he, he offered or, or, or brought a, um, an offering that was unacceptable, God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you. Beware. So, I hope that you all leave motivated and convicted today by the Spirit to deal with your sin while there is still time. Let's consider what James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what do we see here? We see first that unchecked desire will conceive and give birth to sin. Unchecked desire will conceive and give birth to sin. There it is in, in verse 14. 
and, and the first part of 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. What else do we see? We also see that sin will continue to grow until it brings forth death. Sin will continue to grow until it brings forth death. We see that in the second part of 15. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So I hope that you're beginning to see and get a sense of how important this is and how high the stakes are with with this reality that unchecked desire will conceive and give birth to sin and that sin, when it is fully grown, will bring forth and produce death. Let's stop here, pause here for a word of prayer before we get into uh, the rest of our study. Father, we thank you for your word. Without it, we would be lost. We thank you for sending your son. Without him, we would be lost. I pray, Lord, that as we spend time in your word now, today, and until you call us home, that we would receive what your word says, that we would not treat it lightly, and that when we see in your word, what is called sin, and, and that is reflected and relevant and seen in our lives, that we would turn from that, that we would treat it with the respect and the way that your word treats it, that we would put it to death, that we might live. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so now let's go to Second Corinthians 7. Second Corinthians 7, we'll be taking a look at verses 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what eagerness, or earnestness rather, this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. This is true, if you, have, if you didn't catch it, that there is a type of grief that we can experience over our sin as we see its effects on ourselves and, and, and also on others that can lead to death. Worldly sorrow produces death. Worldly sorrow produces death. Death. This is important to grasp, right? Anyone else out there ever feel, you know, convicted or, or terrible about something you said or did, only to the next day say or do the same thing again? Ouch, right? This is important that we don't fool ourselves into thinking that just because we simply feel sorry, that that is repentance. Very important to grasp. Next, next couple of blanks are godly sorrow produces repentance and salvation. Godly sorrow produces repentance and salvation. Look at the markers that we see there in verse 11 of what godly sorrow produces. Earnestness, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, punishment. I would remind you that both Peter and Judas felt a grief and regret 
for what they did to our Lord. However, did Judas's sorrow and regret lead to repentance? Was he, like, James, like uh, Peter, or Paul rather, says here, at every turn working to prove himself innocent in the matter? No. No, he was not. So, with these two passages... Actually, just before we go there, I want to sneak one more in. Uh, not, we don't, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to mention it um, to carry with us as we go into Saul. Uh, in, in Ephesians 4 and, and Colossians 3, Paul uses this paradigm for repentance. Um, and some of you actually may be familiar with it since Jeremy occasionally uses this as well. Put off and put on, Right. Um, and I just want to take a look. We could, we could go to Colossians and look at the whole list of put off, put on. Uh, I just want to point out uh, one example in Ephesians 4 that should make it, uh, or should be sufficient rather, to make this point. Ephesians 4, the, the question with regards to repentance is, when is a sinner no longer a sinner? You ever thought about that? A sinner isn't no longer a sinner when he has sorrow or remorse. That's not, that's not, you know, repentant. A sinner is no longer a sinner when he stops stealing, right? Could be sleeping, could be showering, but still a sinner. What does Paul say? Paul says that a thief, rather, I said a sinner is no longer a sinner. I'm so sorry. When is a thief no longer a thief? Um, so back up with me now. When is a thief no longer a thief? A thief is no longer a thief, not when he is sorry or has remorse, not when he stops stealing, but rather, as Paul says, a thief is no longer a thief when he labors doing honest work with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. You catch that? Put off being a thief, stealing. Put on hard work, physical labor, and, and, and generosity. So now, with, with the idea and the realities of, of James and Second Corinthians and, and that little bit in Ephesians. Let's turn our attention uh, to Saul and pick it up in 1 Samuel 13. First Samuel chapter 13. Just to set the scene here. Uh, just before this, Saul was told to wait for Samuel, and Samuel will come and make the offering. And Saul is there, and, and the soldiers begin to flee because the Philistines are drawing near. And so Saul, instead, disobeys and offers a sacrifice that is unlawful for a king to do. In verse 13, we, we read Samuel's response as he comes and sees what has happened. Here's what he says. You have done foolishly, Samuel said to Saul. You have not kept the command of Yahweh your God with which he commanded you. For then Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. And now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought after a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. So here, what I want to point out is that Saul's dynasty is taken away, right? 
Yahweh has sought after someone other than Saul's son, Jonathan, to be prince over his people. So Saul's first great sin, if you will, is that the dynasty is taken away. Now let's fast forward, flip a page, don't know how how big your Bible is, to chapter 15. And let's pick the scene up there. In chapter 15, if you have forgotten, Yahweh has commanded Saul to wipe out the Amalekites and all of their animals completely. However, in verse 9, we read this. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, and they would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Saul did not, in fact, obey Yahweh's command to kill and destroy all of the Amalekites and all of their animals. Saul, of course, gives Samuel some reasons as to why he feels justified in in not following through. And in in, in fact, he even says that he did follow through with with Yahweh's command, but he didn't. This, this uh, This is not good. Just a quick heads up for, for those in the crowd that aren't afraid to answer live questions. Um, I will be asking a live question after I read a few verses, so just pay attention now if you've fallen asleep. Now, let's pick it up in verse 24. Yahweh gave the command. We see clearly Saul did not obey the command in verse 9. Let's pick it up in 24. And Samuel said to Saul, sorry, right there. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the command of Yahweh and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So here's the question to be thinking about. What would repentance look like for Saul? The punishment for his sin is now not only the loss of the kingdom for his descendants, not only the loss of his dynasty, but now Yahweh has torn the kingdom away from you, Saul, and has given it to a neighbor who is better than you. The kingdom is taken away from Saul and given to a man after God's own heart. So, if Saul were to repent here, what would he do? What would it look like? Obedience, right? What would obedience be? A new heart? All good answers, but what I want us to see, because you may, you may think that, that for Saul to repent here, he just has to not pursue David. He has to not kill David. You idiot Saul, don't do that. Don't kill David. Would that be Repentance. Five hundred points here. The winner. We have found the winner. Is this where the stuff drops from the ceiling now? Okay. Yes. He needs to not only not pursue David, right? 
he needs to receive the punishment from the Lord and say, I will make way now for Yahweh's choice, his new king. Okay, keep that in the back of your minds. Let's, let's now turn to the next verse, verse 30, and see what Saul does indeed. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Okay, starting good. Yet, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Has Saul repented? No. No, he's, he's quite fine saying, I'm sorry for what I have done, and still desires to remain king. Remember what we read back in James chapter 1? Sinful desires that are unchecked, or desires rather that are unchecked, give birth to sin. And sin will continue to grow until it brings forth death. Saul has a chance here to, to repent, to receive the correction from Yahweh for his sins, for what he has done. Will he receive the Lord? He's not. I have sinned. That's good. All is well. However, yet honor me now before the people, before the elders of the people and before Israel. David, as I've said many times in our study, is a man after God's own heart. And sadly, Saul is a man after the people's own heart. And here begins Saul's sinful progression. Saul's sinful progression. Saul is sorry, but his desire to remain king is predominant. Even after he was just told that the kingdom will be given to a neighbor of his who is better than he. The first step of Saul's sinful progression is Saul's sorrowful sin. Saul's sorrowful sin. He is sad that his sin requires a punishment, but he is unwilling to receive that punishment. We are now in the second half of the outline. Boy, I better hurry. All right. Let's turn to chapter 16, or, or, or bring your eyes down to chapter 16. We were just in 15. Saul was told that the kingdom was going to be taken away from him. The kingdom is taken away from him and is given to a neighbor of his who is better than he. And let's pick it up in, in 16. And we'll start in verse 14. We'll skip the, the anointing of David. I pray that you're familiar with that. Samuel goes down, picks the, 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 the youngest of Jesse's sons. And here in 14, we see David kind of beginning to, to come into, into Saul's um, presence and kingdom. Now the spirit of Yahweh had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from Yahweh tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold... Right? We, we know someone that this evil spirit is coming upon you. I'm just going to paraphrase so we get down to it. Uh, that an evil spirit has come upon you. We know someone who's skillful at playing the liar. Let's bring him in and he may be able to, to soothe you. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 21. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. You catch that? What's Saul's first reception of David? He loves him. He wants him. David's no threat to him. He doesn't know who David is yet. So David is initially not a threat to him or, or a threat really to his desire to remain king, right? David's an asset to him. He welcomes him in. He loves him. 
Let's pick it up in 17. Everyone should ought to be familiar with the story of David and Goliath. I just want to highlight uh, David's response. So let's pick it up in verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike down and cut off your head. Spoiler alert. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth, that, rather, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Here is one who is not afraid to face a giant in battle, for the battle belongs to the Lord. Here is one after God's own heart. Let's turn to verse eight or chapter eighteen. If you're following along, all right. As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, Jonathan, that is, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house again. What is Saul's initial reception of David? Welcoming, bring him in. He's an asset. And Jonathan stripped, verse 4, himself of his robe that was on him, and he gave it to David, his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So now not only has David been received well by Saul, But now David's been received well by all Israel and all of Saul's servants. Almost as if he has the Lord's anointing. So, I think it's clear um, here that the Lord is working in and through David. That's going to become more and more uh, prevalent as we move on. So, verse 6. As they were coming home, David returned from striking down the Philistines. Again, success. The woman came out of the city of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Who are they coming out to meet? They're coming out to meet Saul. Let's see what they say. The woman sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has killed his thousands. And Saul's like, Amen, yes, tell me more. I, I love to hear that. That's my number one hit, baby. But David, his tens of thousands, you can almost hear the record kind of, you know, mixing. Saul's like, wait a second now, that's not, that's, that's not the one. Um, they give Saul the, 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 the first, uh, like the order of preeminence in this song. Saul has, has struck down his thousands, and, and they're just overwhelmed with how the Lord's working. But David, his tens of thousands. Will Saul receive David? The question remains, will Saul repent? Will he receive David as the Lord's servant, his choice to be king? Or will he make himself 
an enemy of God by pursuing his desire to remain king. The next day, a harmful spirit from God, this is verse 10, rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand. Uh-oh. And Saul hurled that spear at David, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Saul's recognizing things. He's putting two and two together. They sing their song, and I skipped over this, forgive me. What was his response to that song? They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me, hmm, they've only ascribed a thousands. And what more can, they, can he have but the kingdom? Saul's putting the pieces together. And here in this fit of rage with the spirit upon him, uh, Saul has a sudden sin. Here we see Saul's sudden sin. This attempt to kill David does not seem to be premeditated, right? Saul didn't plan this. However, his desire for the kingdom, his desire for the kingdom has given him an evil eye towards David. He had a good eye towards David, welcomed him in. And now Saul has an evil eye, verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day on. He has an evil eye towards David. And this puts David square in Saul's crosshairs when this evil spirit comes upon him. Saul's sudden sin. Saul, however, does something that looks like the right thing here, right? What does he do? He seems to be shocked that he would try to kill David. And so in verse 13, Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. So Saul does, does at least one good thing here. And he sends David out of his presence, no longer to, to be there um, as his liar player and, and no opportunities to throw spears at him. But that is, that is good as far as it goes. But if he doesn't repent of his sinful desire, this is only delaying the inevitable. But at least he does that. And then he stands in fearful awe of David as David continues to have success, verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant and fight the Lord's battles. He's trying to set David up. We'll get to verse 20 now. We'll skip that because he, he eventually uh, gives her off to someone else. Verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David, as did all Israel. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Okay, why does this please you? To, to gain probably the best son-in-law uh, there is, ex- except for the Uriah thing. Um, Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul had said to David a second time, hey, you want to be my son-in-law? Here's the, the bride price. Go and get 100 foreskins of the Philistines and then bring back evidence that, uh, that you have done that. 
And David goes out in his joy, right? That he is, is going, you know, that he's worthy to, to become a son-in-law of Saul. And he doesn't just bring back 100 foreskins. He doubles up and brings back 200 foreskins. The Lord is with him. And how does Saul receive this? How does Saul receive his plan to have the Philistines take care of his dirty work? Verse 25. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines, but David was successful. Verse 29. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Do you sense the progression that, that is this happening in Saul's life? The hold that sin has on him, how it's becoming deeper and deeper. First it was Saul's sudden sin. Now we see Saul's secret sin. Saul's secret sin. He's not quite out in the public. He's, he was ashamed of himself just, just a little bit ago to throw a spear at David. And now he is trying to come up with a plan to kill David. He's not quite given himself over to the full temptation of his desire to, to go and do it himself. But now he's, he's going a, a step further, inch by inch. And now he's trying to get others to do it. Now, no one knows. He hasn't revealed this desire to remain king and, or the, this desire to kill David that he might remain king. He hasn't revealed that to anyone, but he's, he's working out plans to do just that. He is now comfortable enough with the idea that David must die that he is willing to get his enemies to do the job for him. Let this be a warning to all of us that uh, we may be able to resist the latest temptation of our desire. And we may be able to dodge the one that, that our desire has thrown our way now. But Unless you put to death your desire, it's only going to get bigger and stronger. And one day, it may succeed in its goal to put you to death. Also note this pattern, that David's successes are simultaneously frustrating Saul the man, as well as Saul's plans. And what I mean by that is that David has more and more success and it's not coincidental that David is having more and more success. The Lord is crying out to Saul, Saul, this is my anointed. This is my king. Will you receive him? Time and time again. And those, those successes of, of David, rather, frustrate Saul. Ah, he's after my kingdom. And after Saul makes an attempt after an attempt, the, and David has success even after that attempt, it's just frustrating all of his plans as well. I'm sure you've heard the saying that the same sun that melts wax hardens clay, right? Well, it is interesting to point out that though Saul's hatred of David is increasing and increasing and increasing, Saul's very own son, Jonathan, began with a love for David from the beginning. And that love and loyalty has not wavered and will not waver the rest of, of, of uh, rather, Jonathan's life. If you remember, when, when Jonathan heard of these things after talking with Saul, he immediately went and knitted his heart together with David, made a covenant with David, gave David his robe and his sword and all of his things to communicate, you, you indeed are the prince, not me. We better move on. 19. And Saul spoke to David, his son, and all his servants, that he should kill, that they rather should kill David. 
But Jonathan, Saul's son, I like the name Jonathan, by the way. Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. And, and he says, hey, I'm going to go and speak to my father for you. And if I learn anything, I'll tell it to you. Jonathan spoke well of his father to David. We'll pick it up in five, for, or rather four. And he says this, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in the hand, in his hand rather, and struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Now don't read ahead. What do you think is going to happen here? David just rebuked his father for pursuing, sorry, Jonathan just rebuked his father for pursuing David. What will Saul do? What is his root desire? The kingdom. What will Saul do? Well, Saul listens to the voice of of Jonathan. Saul swore, as long as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Again, that's, that's good as far as it goes. You shouldn't try to kill David. Amen. You've checked that box. However, what have you put on, Saul? It's not enough to put off. We must also put on. So he makes this covenant, this, this, this vow, invokes the name of Yahweh. He shall not be put to death. Um, and, and we'll see if that holds. We now have entered Saul's shared sin. He, he's brought Jonathan and his servants in on this and has said, hey, you guys should kill David. This is Saul's shared sin. Saul's shared sin. Saul, for the first time, is, is sharing his plan to kill David with others, but not everyone, right? It's not public out in the open. Not all Israel knows. Again, sin is progressing. Saul is, not, Saul is checking the temptations. Oh, I'll send David out of, out of my presence. Oh, I will make a vow and, and, and swear before Yahweh that I will not harm David. He's, he's checking the temptations, but those temptations come from a root desire to remain king. And that, for the rest of his life, is something he never repents of. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Thankful, thankfully, Jonathan rebukes Saul, and Saul seems to receive the rebuke. He swears by Yahweh that he will not put David to death. But the question remains. Remember the question from earlier? Will Saul repent? Will he receive David as the Lord's chosen king? Or will he continue to make himself an enemy of God by pursuing his own desires? Verse 8. And there was war. And remember, Saul tries to do something to, to, for his own kingdom. And the Lord frustrates him by doing what? Elevating David more and more to prove to Saul the point. This is indeed my chosen king. Verse 8. And there was war, and David went out and fought the Philistines and struck them with a great blow. Is Saul going to amen that? Like, oh man, my eye, now that I've made that vow to, to Yahweh, my eyes are wide open and I can see the Lord's anointed. And they fled before him. Verse 9, then a harmful spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house 
with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre because David's now in his presence as before, remember? And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul so that, the spear, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Okay, David, or Saul rather, you just swore in the name of Yahweh that you are not going to put David to death. It, you would think that's enough, right? Anyone ever do that? Saul was a fool to think that just because he made a vow to put David to death, that that would actually prevent him from doing so. What is on the throne of Saul's heart? His desire to be king. Saul, do you really think that making a vow in the name of Yahweh in the flesh is going to be stronger than that desire? Let this be a lesson to us all. No matter how many times or even how emotionally we say, I, I, I promise I won't do that again. I swear I won't do that again. You will. Unless you repent of it, your sinful desire will come at you again, bigger and stronger, and you will. You will do it again. You will yell at your wife again or, or say this to your kids again or pick up that drink again. You'll, you will take that second, third, fourth look again. Unless you put to death that desire, you will do it again. Let's pick it up in chapter 20. Chapter 20. A lot here. Let me just paraphrase. uh, Maybe go into a few verses. Verse 4, you know, they're talking and, and Jonathan says to David, you know, whatever you say, I will do. They come up with this plan and David's going to miss this meal with Saul and Jonathan's going to cover for him and say, hey, David's doing such and such. And then that's going to be the, the litmus test to see kind of where Saul's at. And once that's found out, once uh, David or Jonathan, you know, gets wind of, you know, how is Saul taking this? He'll bring word to David through the shot of an arrow beyond you. You know, you better go in front of you. You can come out all as well. And... That's the, that's the decision that they make later in the chapter. We see this in verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. There might be a different way to say that these days. You, you, you don't you know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. He shall surely not be put to death. He shall surely die. Where are you at, Saul? This is... This is the first time that Saul finally says out loud what has been going on all along. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Right? And Jonathan, Saul's making an argument to Jonathan, right? Hey, you idiot. You ought to be pursuing David. It's to your own interest. Now, Jonathan, before, he was 
you know, after Saul said, hey, let's go kill David, Jonathan was able to reason with Saul, right? Saul was at a point where he can be reasoned with. Now, albeit he still doubled down on his efforts afterwards, but he at least received Jonathan's words and he said, you know what? I, I swear as Yahweh lives, David shall not be put to death. He turns from that. He brings David back into the kingdom, thinking that that's enough, thinking that he's got victory over the sin. He's, he's like, I, I know now I'll never, I mean, wow, how could I ever? Brings David back into the kingdom. Now Jonathan's going to try that same tactic. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And Saul's going to say, you're right, Jonathan. I, man, I'm an idiot. I am so sorry. What is David going to, or Saul going to do? Spiraling down. Unrelenting progression of unrepentant sin. Saul is not repenting. He may be plucking the fruit off the tree. Oh, this isn't an apple tree. This isn't an apple tree. This isn't an apple tree. I wish I had that problem. Um, He's not doing that. What is he instead doing? I mean, he's doing that, rather, but he's not cutting the tree down and burning it throwing it in the fire. So Saul hurls a spear at Jonathan to strike him. Didn't you just say that your efforts and everything and and Jonathan's efforts should align with yours to retain the kingdom for him? And then you go and you act hypocritically and throw a spear at him? Sin, I've heard it said before, I'll take no credit for it, makes you stupid. Sin really makes you stupid. Now Jonathan knows that Saul is determined to put John, death, David rather to death. Verse 33 there at the end. Now let's skip verse, chapter 21. David is fleeing Saul at this point, right? The, the message has been sent. David is fleeing and he flees to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And, and he receives some things and, and, and Goliath's sword and Doeg the Edomite was there to see and, and, and witness that. He, Doeg brings this word back to Saul and says, hey, Saul, you've got some enemies that are out there helping David. Saul comes and says this in verse 13 of chapter 22. Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Is that really what's happening? Fake news, Maybe. But Saul is so enraged here. Ahimelech answers, you know, no, this is not anything new that we do for David. We had no idea what was going on. David is your right-hand man. We're just doing what we always do for David. We have nothing against you. We had no no idea, no, no knowledge of this. Verse 16, Saul wants to hear none of this. You shall surely die, Himelech, you and all your father's house, which, anywho, uh, is a fulfillment of a previous prophecy in, in 1 Samuel um, given to Eli. And, and because of his um, w- worthless sons and his lack of discipline of them. Anywho, you shall surely die, Himelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood by him, Turn and kill the priests of Yahweh, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servant of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of Yahweh. 
So the king turns to Doeg the Edomite and tells him to carry it out. And Doeg's like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Just think of, of what's, where Saul's at right now. He's going to kill 85 priests at Nob and their wives and their children and their livestock all in pursuit of David. Doeg the Edomite struck down the priests and killed that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. At Nob, verse 19, and Nob, rather, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. Saul has now, we finally reached Saul's scandalous sin. Saul's scandalous sin. Saul could have left the David situation alone, right? David has now fled the kingdom. He's out of the kingdom. It's all Saul's. But Saul can't do that, no. To borrow the analogy in James, right? Saul's sin baby is now full grown. And death is on its way. But before Saul dies because of his sin, he has 85 priests at Nob, along with their wives and children slaughtered. Let's go to chapter 24. Now David's fleeing in, in the wilderness. Saul is pursuing him. Verse, chapter 24, rather, verse 16. We see this. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, this is in the cave, David feels convicted. Um, and Saul says, <clears throat> Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Again, Saul is experiencing sorrow. Saul has regret here. Let's see what he says. Verse 17, And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this, sorry, and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when Yahweh put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, he will, let him, will he let him go safely? So may Yahweh reward you with good for what you have done this day. Verse 20. Listen up. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Has Saul finally reached repentance? Did you hear what he just said? You, David! He's acknowledging, you, David, shall surely be king. The kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And they depart and go their separate ways. Samuel dies, and Saul repeats the same old story and pursues David again. He feels sorrow and remorse, but not once does he waver on this desire to retain the kingdom. Sure, David, I'll, I'll save the kingdom for you when I am done and gone. No, no, Saul. This day the Lord has given the kingdom to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Chapter 26. We better move on here. Um, chapter 26. David and Saul's second encounter and let's pick it up in verse 21. 
Then Saul said, I have sinned again. Do you catch that? Saul is, he, he is willing to admit his wrong. He's willing to say he sinned. Let that be a warning to us all, lest we think again, as I said in the beginning, when is a thief no longer a thief? It's not when he feels sorrow and remorse. I have sinned, verse 21. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly, and I have made a great mistake. He gives that. He opens the door for David to, to return to the kingdom. Just, just read verse 27. Then David, will David return? But here's your answer. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than, to, than that I should escape the, to the land of the Philistines. Didn't Saul just extend an, an olive branch and say, Hey, David, come back to the kingdom? Come back to my kingdom? There's your answer. David knows. David's no fool. David sees that Saul is engulfed in this sin. He's completely taken over. Saul confesses and promises not to harm David. David's not fooled. Saul feels sorrow and, rejoice, and, and remorse, rather, but he will not reject himself as king and receive David as king and submit to him. Let's go to 28, last chapter that we'll go to in 1 Samuel. And thank you all for getting those fingertips wet for me this morning and and turning some pages. Here in chapter 28, we'll pick it up in verse 15. Saul is, even though he has been the one to remove the mediums and sorcerers from the land, he now finds himself um, in need of them. Strangely. So he pursues one and, and has her conjure up Samuel for him. And we'll pick it up in verse 15. And then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me in, in bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, neither by prophecies or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you up so that you can tell me what to do. And Samuel said, why then? Do you ask me, since the Lord, Yahweh, has turned from you and become your enemy? You know, if we continue in our sin and make the Lord our enemy in our sinning, be careful. He may turn and make you his enemy. Yahweh has done to you as he spoke to me. For Yahweh has torn the kingdom out of your hand and has given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, Yahweh has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, would we say earlier, sin will continue to grow until it brings forth death. Now that's spiritual death, but Saul's also going to get his measure of physical death now. Moreover, Yahweh will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. Yahweh will give the armies of the Israel into the hand of the Philistines. And Saul goes away sad. This is a sad, sad message. 
a very sobering message. So, what should Saul have done? How should Saul have responded? We heard earlier that Saul should have repented, definitely not tried to kill David, but also received David as the, as the, the king of Yahweh's choice. How should Saul have repented? Well, maybe he should have done what David's greater grandson, he should do what David's greater grandson's nephew, cousin, cousin, did. When he saw the Lord, he must increase, but I must decrease. That should have been Saul's disposition. He didn't. No. It's interesting, I mentioned this earlier, that that a foil for Saul within his own household is his son Jonathan. That's what Saul should have done. The moment Jonathan hears these words off the lips of David, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, I come at you in the name of Yahweh. When Jonathan heard that, he was, we have ourselves a king. He's excited, and he throws himself at David. Well, not literally, but he makes his covenant with David. His heart is knit to David. And every moment from that day on, until sadly, because of Saul's sin, David, sorry, Jonathan dies as well. Until that day, he is David's loyal companion continually. And Jonathan, I submit to you, is no slouch. Like if you go and you read 1 Samuel, Jonathan was fit for a king. He had the love of Yahweh. He was a mighty warrior, went out and fought against the, the garrison of the Philistines. He was fit for a king. Did he hold on to that and say, David, who is this? I'm a mighty warrior. He's only fighting bears and lions and tigers, oh my. No, no, what did he do? He, he recognized who the Lord's choice was, and he said, Amen. So, I, I, I'm not going to add to Scripture, but um, I think perhaps Jonathan is one worthy of the Hall of Faith. He despised his potential earthly kingdom and through faith pursued a better one, a lasting kingdom with the very best of kings, David's greater grandson. Here's some real quick application and you'll have to forgive me, I'm over time. Call sin, sin. Right? Don't play with sin. Don't say, oh, I just get, I'm not a morning person. Or, or, oh, it's this other person's fault. Call sin, sin. Because when you call sin, sin, now you've got something to deal with. Right? If it's just, oh, that's my personality, or this, that. If you convince yourselves that it's not sin, you won't deal with it like sin. Call sin, sin. Quickly, treat your sins seriously. Don't treat your sins lightly. Make war, as John Piper would say, with your sin. Put to death what is earthly among you, as Paul would say. And then also finally, treat others' sins seriously. If you see a brother or sister in our body sinning, don't excuse it like some did for Saul. Like, oh, oh, that's weird that he threw that spirit, David. Oh, 
That's weird that he wants us to go and kill David. Maybe we should tell him not to. Oh, good, good. He's made a vow. No. When you see sin, other sins, treat that seriously as well. I'm out of time, but if you stick around for an ABF or for the ABF, I promise to give you more. Let me close with a familiar benediction. Well, let me pray first, and then I'll close with a benediction. Let's pray. Father, we, we're broken. We are in need of you and, and your salvation. I pray, Lord, that we would not battle sin in the flesh. We will lose. I pray, Lord, that we would put on we would put on your word, that we would put on truth, that we would put on things that are, are, will equip us and help us in this fight, that we would pray that your spirit would move in our hearts and, and, and cause us to recognize the sin and call it what it is and to treat it with the utmost respect in that truest sense and to, to put it to death. Help us, Lord, not to think that just because we experience sorrow that we have repented. Help us to pursue those markers of sorrow. Help us to have the eagerness, have the longing, have the, the zeal, and, and, and help us to also receive the punishment should our sin require that. May you help us as we continue in your word, and may you help us to help others and have others to help us along this walk. In your name we pray, amen. My benediction is going to be one you're familiar with. Jude, the end of Jude, 24 and 25. Um, If I can turn there quickly. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forevermore. Amen.